Welcome to Let It Roll, the podcast about how and why popular music happens, hosted by Nate Wilcox. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to all the other great Pantheon podcasts at www.PantheonPodcasts.com. Today, Nate welcomes author James Kaplan to discuss his book, Irving Berlin, New York Genius. James tells Nate about the legendary songwriter's 50-year career from Alexander's Ragtime Band to Annie Get Your Gun. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and today I'm joined by James Kaplan, author of Irving Berlin, New York Genius. James, welcome. Delighted to be here, Nate. Thanks for having me. Sure. And this is a, a really nice book on a big topic. I mean, Irving Berlin, as Jerome Kern said, doesn't have a place in American music. He is American music. And at least up to the 1950s, that is absolutely the case. I mean, this guy had a career from 1909, still active all the way up to 1966, had a hit play in the early 50s, an incredible run. I mean, nobody in the modern era except maybe Paul McCartney could even be comparable. Yes, and I draw a lot of comparisons, actually, between Lennon-McCartney and Irving Berlin. Very similar work ethics, very, very similar uh, brilliance at constructing songs, and a lot of similarities in the way they constructed songs. And yet, unlike Lennon-McCartney, who had you know their 10 incredible years, and, and you know Lennon had another five years or so, and McCartney's maybe had another 10. I mean, Berlin kept it up and was at the top of his game through the teens, through the 20s, answered the challenge of Gershwin and Kern and, and the, the modern Broadway musical that integrates a story with the songs all the way up, you know, into and beyond World War II. It's, it's just an incredible achievement. And um, he's just a really likable guy, and reading this book really brings that across. I mean, this is a guy with what you call an innate moral compass and avoids the temptation of most of the temptations of fame and money to an unbelievable degree. How do you that's, explain that's, that? That's, that's true, uh, and, uh, but I would, I, would, I, I would like to be very, uh, very careful about uh, about. Emphasizing his yes, his his high degree of morality and ethics, and uh, and pointing out at the same time that he was in a business, a business that remains extremely competitive, full of sharp elbows, and nobody was more competitive and sharp elbowed than Berlin. He had a keen eye for the best business opportunities. He was sharply competitive and he could be very tough. Absolutely. And as his, you know, founds his own music company very early on in his career. I think he'd had maybe two or three hits by the time he finds founds his own company. And then as a founding member of ASCAP, the publishing union that, you know, brought all the songwriters together and collected the royalties. And BMI comes along in the 40s to compete with it. But essentially, you know, Irving Berlin found co-founded Modern Music Publishing. Yes, he was really present at the creation of, of the American Songbook. And and in your book, you talk about 
your own personal sort of discovery of of Berlin, and you know it ties in with with the the New York theme that you were working as an intern for the New Yorker. Um, I might have gotten the title wrong, but you're in a junior capacity at the New Yorker. Well, I I, I used to I used to handle a, a now outmoded machine called a typewriter. I was I was <laughs> I was an editorial typist at the New Yorker. And uh, you know, kids today don't know what they're missing with those IBM yeah, these kids today, I Tell you, yeah. And and but this was one song, the first song that you bring up in the book was one I hadn't been familiar with, which was a very early Irving Berlin song, and I hadn't realized he had recorded performances. But you found a record going back to 1909 of Irving Berlin singing a song called called Oh How That German Could Love. What dream? What you know? What fascinated you about that recording? Well, the first thing that fascinated me about that recording was how unbelievably old it was. I didn't even know they made records in 1909. And then to hear this record that despite the hisses and pops uh, inevitably that came through in the reproduction process, and, and let us not forget that, uh, that when phonograph records were first made in the very early 1900s, there was no such thing as ele electronic microphone. These were made, uh, singers sang or orchestras played through the bell of a gigantic speaking horn, a, a cone-like assembly that translated the vibrations of the voice or the music uh, to a needle that etched the vibrations into a wax disc uh, that was then uh, that was then converted into a shellac disc that could be played on this new fangled instrument called a phonograph. So all of this process was necessary, and yet piercing through this process was the unbelievably light witty, engaging voice of a kind of genius who was coming up with this very funny popular song, this very funny take on the silly ethnic songs of the early 1900s. The, the title itself gives you a hint, Oh, How That German Could Love. It was about a very curvy German lady who this singer was infatuated with, and it's such, such a beguiling performance. And in the book you call it Modernism on the Hoof, startling formal innovation smuggled into, into a seemingly banal idiom. Elaborate on that a little bit. What does that mean, modernism here's on the this hoof? 20, here is this 21-year-old. He's 21 years old. And I ask you uh, or any of the listeners to think of themselves at 21. I think of myself at 21 when I could just about tie my shoes. This is a guy who's 21 years old who is not only fully engaging with the art of songwriting, but he's he is making fun of it. He is both he is both succeeding in it and uh, satirizing it at the same time. And so, again, back in the very early 20th century, you had these waves upon waves of immigrants arriving in America at Ellis Island. And as a result of that, uh, kind of in reaction to it and, and also paying homage to it, there was a great fad for ethnic songs, songs written in the voice uh, voices of uh, German-Americans, Italian-Americans, Jewish, uh, Jewish-Americans, African-Americans, uh, kind of making fun of these minorities, but uh, celebrating them at the same time. And this was a song that was uh, sort of done in an umpa style with an umpa band playing in the background. But at the same time, 
uh, Mel Brooks could have written this song. It is, it is just hilarious. So it's Berlin not only writing an ethnic song, but having his way with it and showing how brilliant uh, he promises to be. And let's hear a little bit of it. This is uh, Irving Berlin singing, Oh, How That German Could Love. And that was Irving Berlin himself singing Oh How That German Could Love, a very early song and a very rare recording of Irving Berlin as a performer. And I thought it was important to include that because, you know, frequently we start the Irving Berlin story, we start talking about Irving Berlin with Alexander's Ragtime Band. And it's notable to me that he had multiple hits, notably uh, something about When My Wife Goes to the Country or My Wife Has Gone to the Country, that fit more into that sort of after the ball or sidewalks of New York era or the George M. Cohen Yankee Doodle Dandy style of thing that he would supersede and sort of blow away with Alexander's ragtime band. Can you talk a little bit about that transition from the early Tin Pan Alley to the ragtime era and how Berlin epitomized that? Well, I think the first thing we want to do is is say very carefully and emphatically that ragtime was ragtime. Uh, there's, there's a lot of controversy about ragtime, and ragtime has a lot of a number of definitions. But by the definition of uh, the great genius Scott Joplin, who was kind of the uh, the procreator, the originator of ragtime, Alexander's Ragtime Band is not a ragtime song at all. It's a rather, it is a song about ragtime. It is a song about a band leader named Alexander, a, an African American band leader named Alexander, and it's a sort of, it's a march, really. It's it, it is a it is a call to participate, to enjoy, to sing along, to dance along to ragtime, and it is kind of a uh, it it's not kind of a it is a quantum leap from anything Berlin or anybody else had written before. It comes along at precisely the right moment, 1911, only two years after Oh How That German Could Love. Berlin is now an old man of 23 rather than just 21. And he has been writing songs for a few years. He is making very good money writing songs, such good money that he's now able to go on vacation to Florida. He's on his way to Penn Station to take the uh, uh, the Orange Blossom Limited down to Florida, a train down to Florida. That's how you traveled in those days. But he has a couple of hours before train time, so he stops by the office, and he has a snatch of song that's playing in his head. And here we should note that Berlin wrote music in quotation marks. He didn't know how to write music or read music. He had songs in his head. He would work with a musical secretary, somebody, uh, a man, who would sit at a piano. Berlin would stand next to him and hum the tune he had in mind. And uh, the guy at the piano would play the notes and begin to harmonize it, play chords that Berlin would either approve of or disapprove of, tell the guy to change. He went to the office and he wrote down the lyric to a song that he had had in his head and he had the musical secretary play it. 
and memorialize it. And then he went on vacation to Florida. This whole thing, this stop by the office to write down this song, to take down the notes and the words of it, took maybe 20 minutes. He goes on vacation. He comes back. And this song is put into sheet music. And it is then recorded uh, on the brand new technology of phonograph records, just coming just coming in in 1908, 1909, 1910, and because of the sheet music of Alexander's Ragtime Band and the phonograph record of Alexander's Ragtime Band, the 23-year-old Irving Berlin becomes not just a national cele celebrity, but an international celebrity. The sheet music and the phonograph records travel across the Atlantic to England, to France, to Spain, to Italy, to Germany. Suddenly, this song is playing everywhere. Berlin gets a commission to come across to the London Hippodrome and perform in a show. Uh, they pay him 20,000 pounds, which is the equivalent of $2 million today. He's 23. Come over and be in the show. He gets out of his, uh, he sails across the Atlantic. He gets out of his horse-drawn cab at the Savoy Hotel in London. And the kid who's selling newspapers on the corner is whistling Alexander's Ragtime Band. This is the beginning of the American century. It is a huge epoch-making event, this song. It turns Berlin at 23 into an international celebrity and a millionaire. And I'm glad you brought up the point about this isn't a ragtime song. And 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 I, I thought you covered that very well, but it does, as you call it, it is um, a joyous tribute to African-American musical genius, the first great and lasting one in American popular song from a Jewish-American musical genius. And, and that's just a beautiful, elegant way to summarize what's going on here in this... Uh, conversation between Jewish American songwriters and performers and African American songwriters and performers is something that's going to mark the 20th century as, you know, kind of the American century. And it's a commonly acknowledged to be America's great contribution to the arts. Yes. And it's not always an easy or an uncomplicated conversation. There are, uh, there are hurt feelings. Uh, a lot of the time, Scott Joplin himself, felt that Berlin had ripped off uh, a piece of melody from his opera Tremonitia and put it into Alexander's Ragtime Band and actually tried to sue Berlin. The suit never got off the ground. And I think actually the accusation was, uh, was kind of baseless. But Scott Joplin was a tragic genius, and it was a sad moment in his life. It was an ongoing conversation from the very early 1900s through the teens, into the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, and beyond with uh, rock and roll, blues, R&B, uh, a lot of, of course, many great African-American innovators and, and a lot of Jewish-American innovators involved. And this notion, you know, Berlin being sued by Joplin, and the fact that he had to have a musical secretary to help him find the chords, which he heard in his head. He knew when it was right or wrong. He just didn't have the vocabulary to find the chord he was hearing and he could only play the piano in f sharp like you said he had a transposing piano i think this that in combination with these rumors you know he was also hit with rumors that he had purchased the song from a little negro boy and and that he you know kept this the way they put it then was a little colored boy yes Yes. And so uh, talk about that a little bit. I mean, because, you know, as a product of the rock era, 
I've learned about the great American songbook figures, you know, retrospectively and through, you know, going back from Frank Sinatra and Ellen, Ella Fitzgerald and others. And, you know, it's obvious that George Gershwin was this musical genius who could write operas and rhapsodies and, and contend with the European concert tradition on its own terms, you know, and Rogers, Richard Rogers is clearly this melodic genius and Jerome Kern and others. And Berlin always has this, uh, I don't know, people sort of underestimate Berlin because, you know, Alexander Walcott, his his first biographer, called him a creative ignoramus. I mean, there's no there's no book learning there. The guy didn't wasn't a great conversationalist. He wasn't a musical master. And yet, if you look at his accomplishments, he could go toe-to-toe with any of those guys anytime. I mean, you can put Berlin's oeuvre up against Kern or Gershwin or Rogers or Lennon and McCartney anybody uh, in the 20th century at least as a composer do you think he's overcome that sort of discrimination against him because he wasn't a trained musician and because he wasn't a well-educated man and a brilliant conversationalist well he had a lot to overcome and as i said before he had a lot a lot of competition to to face up to Again, the songwriting business was incredibly competitive, and a lot of the rumors about Berlin, I would say probably all the rumors about Berlin, hiring somebody, some kid to write his tunes or or some black musician to write his tunes, were started by envious fellow songwriters who just weren't having the success, who didn't have the kind of flows out of your head in the middle of the night genius that uh, Berlin had. Now, at the same time as I talk about that genius, we have have to talk about Berlin's unbelievable work ethic. He would he tended to write through the night. He tended to start maybe uh, at 11 o'clock or 12 midnight, work through to 5 or 6 a.m. And he liked to say a couple of things. One thing he said was that he uh, that writing songs was easy. All he had to do was stare at the piano until drops of blood formed on his forehead. <laughs> he, he, he labored. He labored so hard for simplicity in his songs. Simplicity was everything to him. The other thing he liked to say was that he wrote more bad songs than anybody. Berlin was a guy who wrote 1,500, published some 1,500 songs in his lifetime. And as he freely confessed uh, throughout his career, a lot of them were dogs. But it takes a huge amount of work Lennon and McCartney would attest to that, to come up with a really good song. And you have to turn out some crappy songs along the way, uh, a lot of crappy songs, to come up with the, with the cream that rises to the top. And let's go ahead and hear Alexander's Ragtime Band. This is a version by Bing Crosby and Al Jolson from the 1940s. So don't think this is what it sounded like in 1911. Uh, but since we already played the Irving Berlin song from 1909. I felt like the audience had enough of the really early days. But here's Bing Crosby and Al Jolson having a lot of fun with Alexander's Ragtime Band. Come on in here. Oh, you dog. Alexander's Ragtime Band. Come on in here. Come on in here. About the best band in the land. They can play a bugle call like you never heard before. So natural that you want to go to war. That's just the bestest band, what am? Oh, honey lamb. Come on along, come on along. Let me take you by the hand. Up to the and that was the great Bing Crosby and Al Jolson uh, having fun with Irving Berlin's Alexander's Ragtime Band. And 
I think that's one thing I wanted to get across is that we have such a compressed view of the past uh, in in 2020. And even, you know, you're a boomer, I'm a Gen Xer, but I think we tend to look at all of this music of the first half of the 20th century through this lens of Frank Sinatra and Ella Fitzgerald and the sort of art song interpretation of what we call now the Great American Songbook. But I think it's very important to remember this wasn't the Great American Songbook in the 1920s. These were the hits of the day. This was the currency. This was pop hits. And Berlin is having to do everything he can to compete with Gershwin and Rogers at all, and as well as Louis Armstrong and Bing Crosby and, and you know, the specter of real jazz. And and he's got another hit. You know, we're going to – we can't cover his whole career because it's just too much. But I'm going to jump ahead to uh, his – confrontation i wouldn't say confrontation but his triumph in the jazz era which was everybody's step and you call it white jazz explain that terminology a little bit well berlin knew his abilities he was confident in his abilities one thing he said and he said it in 1915 uh, when he was when he was 27 years old, he said, "I know rhythm," and he was not kidding. He did understand rhythm. When he wrote "Everybody's Step," he was writing a song that used syncopation very effectively. He would also use it effectively, very effectively, a few years later when he wrote the great "Putting on the Ritz." Uh, if you listen to that song and then listen to it again, just listen to where the where the beats fall and where the emphases fall in that song and you'll and you'll realize that berlin really did know rhythm but the song uh, everybody step as it was performed uh in the show that it was performed in and i i think we also want to uh note that these songs of the great american songbook were written almost entirely not as freestanding songs but uh, but to a purpose for a purpose for either songs or or movies for shows for musicals uh everybody's step as it was performed in uh, in the show by uh, uh, a vocal trio called the brock sisters three young ladies from the south who sang in very tight harmony uh and they were white they were not black uh, was uh, it, it, it was charming. It was delightful. Uh, it remains delightful, but it it didn't have exactly what you would call soul. I think soul took a while to arrive in Berlin's music. I think it really took until uh, until probably until 1933. Uh, with uh, Berlin and Moss Hart's great review as Thousands Cheer and the great Ethel Waters, an African-American who really made her debut uh, or her Broadway debut in that show, singing a song called Heat Wave. Uh, and she did it very sexily, very jazzily, and she did it the way it needed to be done. But there's a great difference between Everybody's Step by the Brock Sisters and Heat Wave by, uh, by Ethel Waters. And he also wrote a song for Ethel Walters called Supper Time. That, oh, yeah. Talk about that a little bit. I mean, that's probably the most socially conscious piece Berlin uh, of Berlin's great songs. That's probably the most socially conscious and a self-conscious statement that he made. 
Yeah, well, this was a show, uh, the review as Thousands Cheers was a genius idea by Moss Hart and Irving Berlin. It was a musical in the form of a newspaper. And so their idea, their great idea, so great, uh, it's hard to believe nobody had thought of it before, was to mount a musical on a Broadway stage in the form of a newspaper. And it was, it had uh, this show, it had a society column, it had a gossip column, it had a sports column, sports page, it had uh, it had the weather, everything that a newspaper had. And each of these sections of the newspaper, of the fictional newspaper, uh, in the play, As Thousands Cheer, uh, was had Berlin songs that were appropriate to that section. The second act and 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 the the crowd, it was the midst of the depression, and the people who could afford a Broadway ticket were rich people, so that was an audience. Uh, uh, a Broadway audience full of wealthy people enjoying this uh, this satirical, sometimes sharply satirical uh, uh, musical. Real names were used, uh, feelings were spared, but it was all in the in the spirit of good fun. And this wealthy audience was enjoying the show, and then came the intermission, and then came Act Two. And Act Two began with a cheeky little skit about uh, uh it was it was a slightly risque it was about a young uh, engaged couple on their wedding day and the uh, the cheekiness of the skit was that they were waking up together which was very daring very risque back in 1933 well that skit finished up and then a curtain descended and on the curtain was printed a black big black headline that said unknown negro lynched by frenzied mob and the audience uh if you've ever seen the producers uh, the mel brooks movie when the song springtime for hitler is sung and they show a shot of the audience sitting with their mouths open the audience must have looked like that that night uh as they were watching as thousands cheer because this Headline and then Ethel Waters' presentation of this great song that Berlin had written, like nothing he had ever written before, because it is sung by Ethel Waters in the person of a wife uh, waiting for her husband to come home, but he's not going to come home because he's been lynched. Uh, it's a powerful song. It's a terrific song. It predated Billie Holiday's great Strange Fruit, another song about lynching, by 10 years. And it's just an amazing piece of history and an amazing uh, leap forward in Berlin's career. And it was even a statement to have Ethel Waters in the play in the first place. Is that correct? That is correct. And three of her white co-stars, when the show was in tryouts out of town in Philadelphia, refused to take their bows with Ethel Waters uh, for one reason, because she was black. And Berlin heard about it, and he informed the, her three white co-stars that in 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 that case, uh, because they were choosing not to take their bows with Ethel Waters, there would be no bows at all. Well, uh, the three white co-stars changed their minds, and they all took their bows together. Yeah, and I wanted to get that in there because, you know, Berlin and and like many members of his generation, Bing Crosby is the one that comes to mind, is not often 
we don't often look back at Berlin and think of him as a civil rights hero, and in part because of things like the Abraham number in uh, Holiday Inn with Bing Crosby, which is one of his great cinematic triumphs. You know, it's Irving Berlin's Holiday Inn. He negotiates this great deal with Hollywood. He, he's got complete creative control. He's got Bing Crosby. He's got White he, Christmas in he's, there. He's got White Christmas. And you're you jumping my gun there. No, and I was, I was going to drop that card in a second. But, Sorry. But that's okay. But he, he's got, you know, White Christmas. He's got a song about Thanksgiving. Uh, he's got an early version of, of Easter Bonnet. And but he's also got this number Abraham with Bing Crosby singing in blackface. And the whole, yeah, a whole, a whole bunch of people singing in blackface. And Crosby, Crosby, who, by the way, revered, revered black musicians, was a great, uh, a great jazz singer himself at the beginning of his career. Revered black musicians uh, uh, thought that the whole thing was just good fun, and Berlin thought the whole thing was just good fun. This was a different America. We we have to we have to take care not to see that America. Uh, through the eyes of today's America, or if we do, we have to realize that it was a different place. And so this is not to forgive blackface, which is unforgivable, but it's to understand uh, that in those times, it was, it was a tradition in which, by the way, uh, to make things thoroughly complicated, black performers often participated themselves. Now, this is a whole complicated question, the question of black performers putting on blackface to perform, uh, to perform uh, musical numbers. But, but it, was, uh, it was a reprehensible, uh, uh, reprehensible number, a reprehensible part of that movie. And when they show the movie these days, it's, it's just, it's simply been edited out. Yeah, I, I showed it to my daughter recently and had forgotten about Abraham, and we had to stop and have a whole teaching moment about that. You know, she's six years old, and, and yeah. you know, it was very incongruous. And but Berlin even got in trouble at the time, not for the blackface, but because the song used the term darkies. Yes. And because of how he and Bing felt, because Bing had done similar things. Yes, well, Bing, I, the, yeah. He, like and, having Paul Robeson on his radio show and going out of his way to call him Paul and have Paul Robeson call him Bing, which was very controversial at the time, you know, and, and getting the Mills Brothers on his radio show. I mean, these guys had done a lot for integration and to advance the cause of African-American musicians, but the rules had changed under their feet. You know, they're middle-aged guys in their 40s, and so I think some of us that have seen the rules change in the Me Too era can sympathize a little bit. Yes, uh, the rules were changing under their feet. They were doing the best they could. They had uh, they had good hearts, but they had old-fashioned instincts. They were products of their time and their culture, and they were products of an America that, for the first uh, for the first fifty-five years at least of the twentieth century, was deeply, unapologetically racist. Unapologetically, it was a wasp dominated culture, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant. Italian-Americans weren't even officially considered, legally considered white until the 1940s. Uh, it, was, uh, it was an awful time in so many ways. And again, as you put it so eloquently, it, uh, the, the culture was changing under their feet. They adapted uh, the best they could. And this happened to Berlin in numerous ways, not just culturally, but the business changed under his feet multiple times. Like, you know, we talked about how he came up in the sheet music era and it was sheet music. And then records were a secondary promotional tool, but primarily they were selling sheet music for people to play 
and sing around their piano at home, and also to listen to the record, if to a record of of the song by multiple performers. You know, any hit song would have multiple versions come out by many performers. And then the radio comes along in the 1920s when he's well into his career, and then the Broadway musical changes, and you got people like Jerome Kern producing things like Showboat uh, in the late 20s. Then you get Gershwin up in the ante again, you know, with Porgy and Bass and doing a full-on modern musical opera. And Berlin rises to the challenge. He moves to Hollywood in the early 30s. And it's funny that you brought first kind of came to him, and you talk about this in the foreword, through the Marx Brothers. And he, he provided the songs for one of their early movies, Coconuts, which is a terrible gig because, you know, no song is going to shine in a Marx Brothers comedy. But he he rides well, through I, this yeah. and, and eventually hooks up with Fred Astaire and goes on this amazing run of hit absolute classics. Absolute classics, and yet at the same time, uh, Berlin missed Broadway badly. He felt like a fish out of water in Hollywood. He he adored Astaire, who had the same brilliance that he did, the same kind of uh, intense work ethic that Berlin did, uh, and he adored writing for Astaire, but again, he felt very much out of place in Hollywood. He missed New York badly. He wanted, he wanted to go back to Broadway. And let's hear Fred Astaire doing Putting on the Ritz. Avenue on that famous thoroughfare with their noses in the air, high hats and arrow collars, white spats and lots of dollars, spending every dime for a wonderful time. Now if you're blue and you don't know where to go to, why don't you go where fashion sits? Putting on the Ritz. And that was Fred Astaire singing Irving Berlin's Triumphant, putting on the Ritz. And he does get back to Broadway, but it, it's not until after World War II that he writes his first modern musical, Annie Gets Your Gun. Tell us a little bit about it. It was a coincidence that Berlin got that gig. No, it was a terrible coincidence because... Uh, the show that was to have been called Annie Oakley uh, was to have writ been written by uh, Jerome Kern uh, in conjunction with the brother -sis great brother-sister librettists and lyricists Herbert and Dorothy Fields. And Jerome Kern was walking to lunch in Manhattan with his, uh, to meet his wife for lunch uh, one day in 1945 and suddenly dropped to the pavement on Park Avenue uh, with a brain hemorrhage, and he died a week later. Uh, so the great Kern is dead at an early age, and uh, Richard Rogers and Oscar Hammerstein, who were who were producing that show, they had written they had written Oklahoma and South Pacific, and now they had uh, they had sort of transitioned to becoming producers. They were producing Annie Oakley, trying to think who they could hire to write uh, to write the, the music for the show. And the first person everybody thought of, uh, Rogers, Hammerstein, and the Fieldses, was Irving Berlin. But the thing about Berlin was uh, two things: one. His name was always above the title. He had achieved that level of, of fame and power in Hollywood and, uh, and on Broadway. And two, he wrote, uh, and we should, we should take note of this too, because there are very few people who stand alongside of him in this regard. There's Cole Porter, there's Frank Lesser, but very few people. He wrote music and lyrics. Uh, it's like double genius, not just genius. So, uh, 
But they persuaded themselves and they persuaded Berlin uh, anyway. And uh, Dorothy and Herbert Fields very gracefully stepped back uh, and let Berlin write the lyrics. And Berlin went down to Atlantic City and produced a score uh, for Annie Get Your Gun in some incredible time, like two or three weeks, the entire score. And it was a great score from a guy who at the beginning had no idea who Annie Oakley was and said, that he had he, he he didn't know how to write hillbilly music but he wrote it he wrote it great yeah and the the phenomenon of that you know reading your account of that production and the fact that he almost pulled two of the great great songs from that number there's nobody there's no business like show business and anything you can do i could do better because he got mixed feedback from uh, his 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 team around him and and that brings us back to the really big numbers which which Irving Berlin you know, has this incredible catalog that can match Gershwin, et cetera, et cetera, match any pop singer. But he also wrote two songs, White Christmas and God Bless America, that sort of transcend pop culture and inserted themselves right at the root of American culture. I mean, God Bless America is basically the national anthem. And at various times, there have been official attempts to replace the Star Spangled Banner with it. Berlin wouldn't have anything to do with that when he was alive. Um, but if I was a betting man, I might bet even odds that in the next hundred years we change our mind and make God Bless America the official <laughs> song. And White Christmas is the most successful recording in history by a distance you can't fathom. I mean, it was a top 10 hit for 20 straight years in the Bing Crosby recording. And what is the meaning of Irving Berlin, this Jewish immigrant who comes in and writes these absolutely integral American songs. And this was controversial. I mean, people like Charles Lindbergh and the America First movement, they were denouncing the idea that a Jew could write songs like this in America. Yes, they didn't, uh, uh, they, they didn't, uh, they didn't denounce White Christmas. There was vigorous blowback against God Bless America when it was introduced in 1938, 1939. This is a time when there was a powerful America First movement, a powerful movement to keep America out of the war that was beginning in Europe. It was only Pearl Harbor that drew us into the war, but for, uh, but for three years before that, uh, an awful lot of people in America didn't want to, uh, to, to go to war to shed a single drop of American blood to save England, to save European Jews, and, uh, and made a lot of powerful speeches on the radio and in, uh, in big, uh, big venues like Madison Square Garden against, uh, against any, uh, any effort to, uh, to help out the Europeans or the British in this war. And so when Berlin introduced God Bless America and America took to it right away, America was so, uh, so joyous at hearing, most of America was so joyous at hearing this song, uh, but much of America at the same time uh, rebelled against it and, and yes, said well, the nerve, uh, the nerve that this uh, Jewish immigrant had uh, writing a song about God. What did he know about God? God bless America. And it was seen as an act of presumption by a lot of people. And I and I blew my segue there because the point I was trying to make was Berlin kept God Bless America in his drawer for 20 years. He wrote it in 1918 and thought there are too many patriotic songs right now because of World War One, And 
just the idea that somebody could first consider not not including there's no business like show business in the play and then to sit on god bless america for 20 years i mean what an incredible wealth of talent was there were there more treasures on earth in his archives do we know i mean have people sifted through his unpublished works in any comprehensive way are they even extant (laughs) <laughs> well, there is uh, there is a big Irving Berlin collection at the Library of Congress, and there's just about every piece of paper that he ever put his pen to. I think that his uh, I think that his music has been very thoroughly gone through. I think we have. Uh, Listen, Nate, what we have is such a cornucopia of brilliance, of greatness, uh, uh, that I I think it's greedy for us (laughs) to ask for anything more. Uh, uh, So I I don't think that, unlike J.D. Salinger, who knows, who knows what uh, what great what great Salinger works might might still be published. I don't think there is any hidden, mysterious, lost uh, Berlin work that he was too shy to publish during his lifetime. I think that I think that better angels, whether his or people who were working with him, always uh, came to the fore and uh, persuaded him to publish what he should have published. Well, that's reassuring. And I'm pretty happy with the, the amount of topics that we've hit about his career and the industry. But one of my goals was to talk about Berlin as a person. And I think you can't cover that without talking about these incredible tragedies he's faced. First, losing his father at a very young age, which terminated his education and literally put him out on the streets within a couple of years because he felt he wasn't contributing enough uh, to the family and that they'd be better off without him. And then the death of his first wife, right after their honeymoon, he takes her to Cuba on a honeymoon and she takes ill of typhus and dies a few weeks later. And, you know, this is not a guy that we think of as, as an artiste. He's not somebody who, you know, he's not Sylvia Plath. He didn't reach into his heart and tear out, you know, these songs. But in that case, he did break that pattern and, and wrote a song called When I Lost You that was very personal. Yes, it's a beautiful waltz that he wrote in 1912 after the death of by uh, of his of his first wife uh, Dorothy. He was 24 years old. It's a gorgeous song. It has been recorded many times since. It holds up. It is it is a a, a waltz whose lyrics have a simplicity that he uh, that he had to really really work very very hard to achieve uh it it holds up uh it was perhaps the one instance the one instance in his life where berlin admitted that he wrote a song uh, about his own personal experience but i think it's important to know and and there's one there's a loss uh, berlin's life was really uh, marked etched deeply by loss not only the loss of his father his first wife but when he married again uh there was an infant son three weeks old who died on Christmas Day of crib death in uh, 1928. There was that terrible loss, and I think that that loss arguably underlies uh, the the bittersweet, uh, yearning feeling of the song White Christmas. I think Berlin's entire oeuvre of 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 ballads certainly contains uh, contains uh, elements, traces, strains of of sadness that uh, that are that are deeply informed by the loss that he suffered. And one of the great songwriting uh, 
tools that he employed uh, to uh, to terrific effect, I think, was uh, the shifting of uh, major to minor within songs. It's also, by the way, it's also, by the way, a device that was very much used by Lennon and McCartney, who both, both suffered the loss, each suffered the loss of a mother when they were in their uh, adolescence. So uh, loss, loss had a lot to do with Lennon and McCartney uh, ballads as well. Okay, let's go ahead and hear When I Lost You. This is uh, Frank Sinatra's version from 1962, many decades after the song was written. And roses I lost the heavens of blue I lost the beautiful I lost the morning. And that was Frank Sinatra saying Berlin's When I Lost You, a song he wrote uh, for his first wife who died tragically, tragically after their honeymoon. And, you know, you talked about the death of his son, and we've been talking about Irving Berlin as sort of this moral paragon, and many people, you know, he... He lived with his second wife straight through to their death. They both lived to be quite old, Berlin to 101, and his wife Ellen lived uh, into her late 80s, and they were devoted. Uh, there's a touching anecdote in there about their senescence when they're in separate rooms and there's caretakers, and he thinks he's in a hotel room, and he's very concerned that he get a message to his wife, and he wants her to know that she loves him, and that he loves her. And they take the message downstairs to his wife, and she sort of laughs, you know, that they say, he wanted you to know you have his love. And, and she says, I knew that. <laughs> and, and that, to me, speaks of the confidence of a couple that had successfully raised three daughters together that had lived together for decades. As you said, his mistress was music, but in the 1920s, it was very controversial for a Tin Pan Alley songwriter, a Jewish immigrant, to court the daughter of one of the titans of American industry, Clarence Mackey of, of a major telegraph company. Talk about that a little bit and, and the, the role of the tabloids and how Berlin reacted to the negative spotlight of fame. Well, it was rough. Uh, they were... Uh... As you say, they were a mismatched couple. Berlin was a 35-year-old widower. She was a tw uh, and, and a Jew, and she was a 21-year-old Catholic socialite uh, who wrote amusing pieces for the New Yorker, which was a brand new magazine then. And her father, Clarence Mackey, was uh, not so much a tycoon. His his father was a tycoon. He was an heir to a huge fortune, the Comstock Silverload fortune. Uh, a Catholic and deeply disapproved of this match, and in fact disinherited his daughter when she married when she married Berlin. And this story was just catnip to the newspapers of the day. Uh, this was way before TV or the internet. They were the Access Hollywood couple of the day. The newspapers could not get enough of this story about these, the Catholic socialite, uh, the uh, the much older Jewish songwriter, the disapproved 
disapproving father, the disinheriting, uh, the whole thing was drama that played out for month after month and year after year. And it got to the point where Irving and Ellen uh, just couldn't stand the spotlight anymore. There was there was one moment when Ellen really snapped at uh, at a bunch of reporters and uh, who one of whom had had the temerity to ask if she was pregnant her first pregnancy, and she swore at him like a sailor, uh, this very polite young lady. So it, it was hard on them, but listen, with fame and uh, uh, comes, comes the wages of fame, and this is, these were the wages that came along with, uh, with, with, their, with their marrying, and they were indeed a happy and long married couple, sixty-three years uh, in all, and and uh, and and loved each other very deeply, and even reconciled with her father, who gallantly. I was watching a documentary about Berlin prepping for this, and it, it just broke me down when they told the story of that Christmas Day when they found Irving Berlin Jr. dead in his crib, and Clarence Mackey shows up at the door a few hours later and put the reclaimed his daughter and, and forgave her. And you point out in the book that their fortunes had kind of changed. Mackey lost his fortune in the stock market crash, and there was no way to... He reestablished himself as a wealthy man, but never again what he had had before. And Berlin also lost everything in the crash, but he had more songs, and he... He, he He had a, a Berlin. Yes, Berlin lost five million dollars. His entire fortune in the stock market crash, five million dollars being the equivalent of at least fifty million today, if not more. But Berlin had something else. First of all, he had a he had a wealthy young wife, who, despite the fact that she had been disinherited, had an untouchable uh, by her father trust fund uh, that that was a source of income. And Berlin also uh, Berlin was a money engine. He had a money engine. He wrote these songs that continued to generate royalties for his wedding uh, his wedding gift to his young wife. He he gave her uh, then and for uh, for all posterity the royalties to the great song always so uh they they made made out just fine and uh yes there was a kind of re reconciliation between berlin and his father-in-law i don't think they ever truly reconciled they were too far apart for that but they they at least became cordial with each other yeah and more importantly she was able to reestablish the relationship with her father and talking about you know berlin bouncing back from the depression there was a, a quote you have in here from him that he had this worry throughout his career that someday I'm going to reach for it and it won't be there. It meaning his inspiration. And eventually, even after this incredibly long career from, you know, from 1909 to call me madam in the early fifties, he's scoring hits, but eventually there does come a time when he reaches for it and it's not there. I think it's important to note too, that Berlin especially in the wake of World War II. He wrote an all-army show called This is the Army uh, that played on Broadway very successfully. Uh, all the receipts were donated to the, uh, to the Army Emergency Relief Fund, every penny. Uh, 
Uh, he then toured this show with an all-army cast across the country. A movie was made of it. And then he took the cast over to England, to Great Britain, and to Europe in the midst of World War II and often close to the front lines within the sounds of guns firing and bombs dropping, performed this show to entertain the troops uh, throughout Italy in 1944 and then the South Pacific in 1944 and 1945. Uh, sometimes at at uh, extreme personal danger. This uh, experience in World War II was very intense, very involving, very physically draining to a guy who was getting close to 60 years old. And he was exhausted at the end of the war and suffered a kind of PTSD and uh, fell into a clinical depression. And for five years in the uh, in the early and mid-1950s, was hospitalized with, uh, with depression. So, uh, yeah, and then there came a show after that. He, he came out of his depression. Nobody knows exactly why or how uh, in the uh, late 50s or early 60s. He wrote a final musical, Mr. President, in 1962. There was a gigantic flop. So he was reaching for it. It was no longer there. But the age had changed. The time had changed. He had changed. He was an old man, and uh, the 60s were in, and, uh, and the music business had completely metamorphosed. And he goes on you know, to live another several decades, basically as a complete recluse, uh, and allows them to have a 100th birthday party that he doesn't attend, but is a big, fitting show business extravaganza with, with um, many performances. And you singled out Madeline Kahn's tawdry take on one of his numbers for special notice. Yes, you'd be surprised. It is a wonderful performance of a wonderfully dirty song without a single dirty word. <laughs> That was an art that they had in in the days of of the censorship and and uh, like so many arts, we might have lost the ability to create new contributions to the Great American Songbook. We can always go back and listen. We can always sit down at the piano and try to play them ourselves. And and so James Kaplan, uh, it's been a great treat talking about Irving Berlin in your book, Irving Berlin, New York Genius. And I hope we can have you back on the show to talk about Frank Sinatra. I'd love to, Nate. It's a great pleasure speaking with you. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Nate will be back next week with the Rock and Roll Librarian to discuss the classic biography of The Doors' Jim Morrison, No One Here Gets Out Alive. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to all the other great Pantheon podcasts at www.PantheonPodcasts.com. Berlin, New York Genius, is published by Yale University Press. Please support our show by ordering via the Amazon referral link on our website, letitrollpodcast.com.
everybody. This is Brian Reisman, host of the podcast Side Jams, which is now a proud member of the Pantheon family of podcasts. I've been a freelance entertainment journalist for 25 years now, and I often end up in conversations that go off on tangents. Suddenly you're discussing someone's outside passion or hobby, something you didn't know about, and it leads into revelations about their character and about their life outside of their art. I've often had to cut those details out because the story had a strict word count or a specific focus. So here, the entire focus of the podcast is just on their side jam or side jams. For example, Alice in Chains frontman William Duvall spent some time talking to me about reading history, which led him into talking about his public school education and how it was so terrible in high school that he actually managed to get into a private school for free so his life could take a different course. In this series of podcasts, you're going to be hearing my interviews with musicians of all different backgrounds and genres, talking about everything from surfing to collecting antiques to stargazing. I hope you enjoy Side Jams. Please tune in regularly, and I'll have a lot of interesting guests in store for you. Splash Weather Repel Premium Windshield Wash features a 3-in-1 formula that repels rain, sleet, snow, and bugs while leaving a streak-free shine. And its advanced beating technology keeps you seeing safely all year long. See safely on the road when you apply a little splash. Pick some up at Walmart today. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.